get to go a step further and we're getting into one of the major, major themes of First Peter. We're finally going to engage in, it in, a, in a fullness. But I want to remind you of where we are. We are in the middle of a sentence in First Peter chapter 1. And we have already had the privilege of examining the inheritance that God has waiting for us who have been begotten again by the working of Jesus Christ. And so we who have received this new birth by God through Jesus Christ have a wondrous inheritance awaiting us. And so for the last two weeks we've had this chance to, really three weeks, to really explore the breadth of what God has preserved for us, what he has attained for us, what he wants to share with us. And this should have should have brought thanksgiving, joy, comfort, encouragement, and challenge to our lives. As we think of being a new person and staking claim to a, a incorruptible inheritance and then being kept uh, by the power of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So we are, that not only is our inheritance preserved, but God has made effort and, and offers to keep us intact to receive that inheritance through our faith. And so we have looked at that, we have examined the joys that are involved in that and the wonder, and, and whenever you start listing off things that, that you want to give somebody, there's always lit, lit up eyes, look at all these presents for me, look at all of this uh, abundance that has been give, granted to me, uh, and we're always excited about that part. But seldom are we considering and excited about the costliness of these things. And we've talked very little really about the costliness of our regeneration, our rebirth, the costliness of, of uh, our inheritance and the costliness of being kept uh, for that day, of receiving that inheritance. Uh, and that is the cost that Jesus Christ has paid for us. And that moves us to understand the necessity of being thankful. Not only am I thankful because of the wonder of the gift that is presented, but I am thankful because of the price that has been paid. And I want to begin there this morning because this is really the foundation understand the principle of rejoicing in trials, rejoicing in suffering. Because Jesus Christ is our example. And so by what mechanism, what means, we receive all this wonderful list. Uh, and the list, is, that, that's a very brief list. It goes on and on and on. We can go through mammoth amounts of Scripture and look at all that God has accomplished for us through Jesus Christ. In fact, in Corinthians, Paul says, all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. So we could encompass all of those and we say, this is, the, this is the wonderful salvation that God has purchased for you. This is the package deal that he has for you. And it's, a, it's, it's huge. It's, it's, it's extensive. We, we, we don't really grasp just how much God has done for us many times. If we did, we would do all things without murmuring or complaining. If we did, we would be singing every day of the wonders of what he has done for us. If we really began to get a hold of that, uh, we would want to serve him as just a partial repayment of not even covering the interest on the principle of what he has accomplished for us. 
And, but we don't. We don't meditate on those things, and that's shameful for us, really, because we are called to meditate on those things. When you look at Philippians and it says, set, these mind, set your mind, meditate on these things, uh, you go through that list, those things are really divine things. And think about how little of your day you really spend thinking about those things. We think a lot about the things of this world. We think a lot about what's going on in the activity of life around us, but we seldom meditate on the wonderful things of God in our life and of God's Word. We, we congratulate ourselves when we spend five minutes to ten minutes a day in Scripture reading before we get going or before we, we, we bed down for the night and think that, that that's an accomplishment when in God's word, we should be meditating on it day and night, on all that God has done. Does that mean I have to have my nose in God's word that entire time? No, but it should be in my mind the entire time. It should be there percolating all the time, giving forward an essence of thanksgiving and joy that fills our being. Because back here, I've got this potpourri bubbling of all the wonderful things that God has done and is doing for me. And so that cost came, and the cost came through Jesus Christ. And the Bible talks about because of the joy that was set before him, Jesus Christ endured the cross. And we need to understand that relationship between enduring suffering and joy. Because it is not something the world offers. It is not something that the world understands. And yet it is one of the key principles of the Christian walk is the association between joy and suffering. And so Jesus Christ is our example. He saw the joy that was on the other side of what he would have to suffer. And while he did not relish the idea of suffering, in fact, to such a degree that at Gethsemane he prayed, if there's any way for this cup to pass by me, please let it be. Uh, if there's any way I can avoid what's coming in the next few hours, I, I would love to avoid it. And yet he surrendered to that, saying, not my will, but yours will be done, Father. And so he looked beyond what he did not want to endure to see what it would accomplish at the other side of that, of that suffering. And so with joy, he embraced the suffering. And this is that relationship that we want to model. Christ is modeled for us. We want to model in our life. We want to model it to others and uh, it is not an easy thing. And Jesus Christ shows us the, the, the warfare that is there in, in shaping our mind and, and the effort that it takes to really face suffering with joy. You cannot do it off the cuff. It needs to be something you prepare for. Jesus Christ was preparing his life for suffering. He was preparing himself for it. I know that I have suffering, but I want to do it with joy because I want to do the will of the Father. And I know that the will of the Father is to redeem those of the earth who will place their trust in, in this sacrifice. And so it's their only hope. And it has been the plan from eternally, eternity past that, I, that we would provide this for all men. And so uh, I want to set the mental platform so that I can go through the next few hours suffering, and be joyful in the midst of it. Does that mean that we're not serious in it? Well, Jesus Christ was very serious in the midst of his trial, in the midst of his time on the cross. 
Uh, was there agony involved? Yes, there was agony involved, and, and it's all right to describe and to, and to respond to that agony. Uh, but that does not delete or override joy. And hence the Bible calls us to a joy that uh, endures not necessarily happily, but rejoicingly. And there's a distinction between that. So I can endure agony for his name's sake uh, because he endured so much for me and has accomplished so much on my behalf. So this is our example of Jesus Christ. So all this wonderful stuff we've been studying has come at the cost. It came at the cost of the suffering of Jesus Christ. And as much as you think of the physical suffering of being nailed to a cross and, and all that was involved there and the beating prior to that, uh, the real suffering was the separation from the Father that he endured while he was on the cross. Where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, he knew why. It's a rhetorical question, but it is, just, it is trying to communicate to us that I am in great agony. And so I'm not excluding the idea that you're allowed to have expressions of agony, but put them into the context of your life. And the context of my life is that while I, I express a, a, an emotion or, or a, a, a communicate agony, I'm also not denying my joy. And this is our example. So as we go through the passages, not only here in 1 Peter, but in other places this morning, and I want to set that context that Jesus Christ is your example. And we want to follow that example, understand the relationship between joy and suffering. And we already have a taste for that. We already have an understanding of what's coming by what we studied last week when we realize that part of being kept for the day of receiving my inheritance requires my faith. That requires something of my faith to be strengthened, that I have to continue. There is a reciprocal relationship, that there is both what God does, the power of God, and my faith that is required here in the keeping of me for that day. And that requirement means that there needs to be some work in me because I know that my faith, like the disciples, is weak, is small. And Jesus Christ says your, your faith just needs to be the size of a mustard seed and you can do some great things, which communicates hopefully to you how small our faith really is. Jesus Christ isn't asking for substantial amounts because he is the power that accomplishes our keeping but it is our faith in him that is required. And that should be a growing faith every day. And so how do we grow faith? How do you increase faith? And this is, is, brings us to verse 6 of 1 Peter 1. It says, in this, that is in all that we have, the, the uh, begotten again, having a, a wonderful, pure inheritance, and being kept to, to the time to receive it. All three of these things. All three of these um, these In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we begin to see this mega theme of First Peter. The relationship between the Christian and suffering. 
And here he is intimating that the, the recipients, the, the, the pilgrims of the dispersion uh, there in Asia Minor have already and will be. And our expectation is that throughout the church age, we will have to endure sometimes very grievous hardships. That's why the Bible uses the word tribulation to refer to that, to the, what we receive from the world. And we can mess around with terminology and play semantic games, but essentially whether it is trials, tribulations, temptations, whatever you want to, word you want to use, it speaks to that which we endure and must confront because we are countercultural to the nth degree. As much as young people want to try to be countercultural in the way they uh, behave themselves, dress themselves, uh, present themselves in their speech, it's laughable because it's all repeated. It's nothing new. Uh, and if you really want to be countercultural, truly, um, it is not by dressing up all in black, getting a black umbrella, and going breaking store windows. That's been done before. And with even their grandparents were involved in some of that kind of activity. Uh, when you want to really be countercultural, uh, try striving for righteousness in an ungodly world. That's what we are called to. We are called to be countercultural, and we should anticipate that if we are going to be that, that the world will hate us because it hated the one we're following. So we come to this that we are, should greatly rejoice. Now let's just do a, a, again what we did previously. Let's do a little survey of just a handful of verses so we can understand this concept of rejoicing in the midst of grieving. We are grieved or we are distressed. We, are, we have to endure various trials. How does joy interact with that? We've already referenced Jesus Christ. Let's look at some other ones. Let's just... And we'll just start right here. James is right here next door to Peter. Let's go right there. Let's go to James chapter 1. If you want to turn there, just a few pages toward the front of your Bible. Uh, James chapter 1. Look at verse 2 and following. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, please notice the relationship between joy, suffering, and faith. It's the exact same relationship Peter has just described. Remember, it is through faith that you are kept by the power of God. And that the testing of that, that you should have joy, that your faith is being strengthened through trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This is the Goal, this is the end game. And so I face the suffering with, a, with not relishing the suffering, but relishing what's on the other side of that. And with joy, I look over the suffering and I say, there's a goal out there. There's a wonderful thing waiting for me on this other side of that. Every athlete understands that. I endure all the suffering of training my body because I have something beyond. I don't live to train I train to win. I train to compete in the, in, the pri, in the race. I endure the suffering of training, not because of that's the end game. If that were it, we would all sit at home and listen to the governor. 
stay at home. No, I train because I see a place in the race and I see something I want to attain. And so I, I engage this with, with expectation, with, with ag aggressively train. I aggressively bring suffering on my body that I might strengthen my body to attain something beyond training. I'm not just trained to train more. Train because I want to accomplish something. If you, even if you go down here to define fitness, all those people lifting weights, what are they doing? Well, they don't enjoy the pain of lifting weights. What they want on the other side is to walk around like this and be buff. So everyone can look at them. So they can have a strength to do whatever it is they have to do or not do. Uh, but most of that's why those places are filled with mirrors, by the way. How does that muscle look? Let's see. I've got to get that work on. They have that goal. It's not that I endure the burning sensation in my muscles. I understand that that is necessary because I have set a goal prior to the suffering of what I want to attain on the other side of the suffering, and so should be our faith. And so we joyfully engage in this. You know, we turn on music and we go out there and we run until we puke. We turn on music and we, and we sit there and count until our muscles burn and ache. And that's for physical goals that are so temporary that by the time you attain them, you're just about too old to enjoy them. Because your body has started to deteriorate. These are eternal goals we have. And so count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing something that the testing of your faith produces things in your life. Let's next door to James is Hebrews. Let's just go a few more pages back. I just want to communicate, you don't have to go very far in God's word from any passage to find more passages about this very same theme. It is one of the major themes of the epistles of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 10. Pick up in verse, well, let's go 31 because that's kind of interesting. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's the alternative. But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, which may be something we need to prepare our minds for a little bit in this country. To joyfully accept the plundering of your goods. Knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Do you see the relationship again? Your, your inheritance awaits. But it's not in this world. Your inheritance is on the other side of that suffering. And we joyfully want the inheritance and we're thankful for God for, for purchasing it for us at great cost and preserving it for us until that day. Uh, but between now and then, I, by faith, are going to have to endure and I joyfully do that because I know what's on the other side of that. And if we really understood what it meant to be at the very base of the throne of God, we would joyfully accept the taking of our very lives, let alone our stuff, for Christ. Because of the privileged position the martyrs have in heaven. 
I'm pretty sure I'm going to be in some faraway corner. Because I really haven't suffered very much for Christ. My faith is pretty weak. But he says, listen, you Hebrews have, have suffered greatly in times past. Don't squander that. Keep your eyes on the goal. Don't think of these trials and reproaches and tribulations and sufferings. Don't think of them as going on and on forever because they won't. You've endured it in the past. Endure it now. You'll have to endure it in the future and because our eyes are stayed on heaven. Are your eyes stayed on heaven? This is the question. And once our perspective is kept on heaven, everything changes, doesn't it? I can slaw through this world and all that it does to me because my eyes are on the prize. It's on heaven. And as the prize draws nearer and nearer and it's closer to my possession, when I can grab hold of it, is not the time I want to give up. I want to press even harder. And this is what Paul talks about in Philippians. I'm going to press toward the prize. I'm not going to let up now and then miss attaining it. And so here in Hebrews, again, uh, you were saved, you were illuminated, your light was turned on, you endured some, a great struggle with sufferings, made a spectacle, uh, you even associated with others that were like that, you didn't, and this is a, a, something we need to, we embrace, if I'm not suffering, I should embrace those who are. They're suffering for name's sake. I want to be associated with them. I want to say, they are my kind. But here's the American mentality of religion. Here's the American mentality of Christianity. Is I'm going to associate with those who are successful. Well, what does that mean to Americans? That means that you have a great following. You, you have a lot of wealth. You have, a lot of, you have all these things. That's who I want to associate with are these, are these great ones and not associate with the suffering ones. We want to associate with the prosperous ones, not those who are enduring great suffering. The Hebrews weren't like that. The, the recipients of this letter uh, had a history of associating with men like Paul who got beat up in places he went. He was shipwrecked. He's been in prison. He's getting all these things. He's, he's enduring and he has to list them to the Corinthians. And these people saying, we associate with those. Those are our kind. Those are our people. Those who are enduring for Christ. And I'm not going to turn my back and ignore their suffering. I'm not going to say, oh, they're suffering because they don't please God. And I have heard that said. God is judging them. When Christians suffer, God is not at the hands of the world. That is not a judgment of God. That is a blessed testing of faith. That is training ground for eternity. They will be the ones who will attain the prize. Not those of us who sit to judge them and say, oh, you must be doing something wrong because you're not prosperous. You don't have this. You don't have that. You don't have, you don't have wealth. You don't have a big building. You don't have a great following. You don't have... You don't have 50 million people on following your tweets. I don't even, does the president even have 50 million? I don't know. So, is that a lot? Apparently. 
Okay, so 5,000 people following your tweets. I don't tweet, so I can't tell you that, what that is involved. That's our measure of prosperity. And if you don't have that, then, oh, you know, God hasn't blessed you. We don't go into the prison and say, well, God's really blessed you. But you would have to do that if you wanted to go meet with Paul. You'd have to go to prison when he's under house arrest and say, well, God is really blessing you. Here you are writing scripture. That's where you would have to go to visit John Bunyan, was in prison while he was writing Pilgrim's Progress. He was in prison. Oh, that we would understand that this should be our association. And so we who aren't suffering should be associated with those who are suffering, even if it puts approach of the approach of the world on us. That's what the Hebrews were doing. And they said they joyfully, look at, and even joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods. Because they had a better and more enduring inheritance. Take my stuff. You can take all this stuff, but you can't touch my inheritance in heaven. Because that's preserved by the Father. God has accomplished that, and no man can take it away from me. And so, take my stuff now, Okay, is that the worst you can do? Okay, you're going to give me pain, suffering? That's okay because I have a place of no pain for all eternity and compared to what is confronting you for all eternity, this is nothing. You want to take my life? I gladly offer it. Why? Because I have new life waiting for me. I don't have to struggle with all the junk of this flesh. The Hebrews understood that. But I'm not done. Let's go to, I already mentioned Philippians. Let's go to Philippians. I could go to a lot of others. Let's go to Philippians. I have a different one marked, but since I mentioned Philippians 4, let's look at the foundation of Philippians. Move my marker here. Philippians chapter 1. Let's pick up in verse. Let's pick up in verse nineteen. Uh, so you can get Paul's perspective and then what he saw for his people. It says, "For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed." Please notice this is what faith looks like. My expectation is beyond what I'm enduring today. Paul already talked in Philippians about what he's enduring in prison. It says, this is my expectation. I shall be not ashamed with all boldness as always. So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two, having desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Our inheritance is far better than this world. Don't set your affections on this world because you have a much better world waiting for you. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident, I know I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. That's for him. You see the relationship between enduring, suffering, rejoicing, and faith. 
Let's pick up in verse 27. That's really what I, where I should have been. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Do you see the relationship here again? Once again, over and over again, the relationship between our faith today, what we have to suffer, and our future that is held by God. So, and our joy. So our joyfulness is based upon the total picture because I know the whole picture, I know where I'm at, I know where I want to be, I know it's going to take some work of God in my life to keep me till that point, and part of that means my faith needs to be increased, my faith is only increased as it's tested, so therefore my faith must be tested for me to be kept for that day when I can get the inheritance. And if we have an understanding of that process, and we should, because if we study God's word, it's everywhere. The process is everywhere throughout God's word. Once I understand this big picture, taking individual steps, while they might even involve some personal agony, I embrace them. Why do I embrace them? Take my stuff. You're going to rob me of all my worldly goods? Well, they weren't going to last very much longer anyway. I still have a hope. I have assurance. So joyfully, I will allow you to rob me of my goods. Joyfully, I will allow you to bring suffering into my life. Not because I enjoy suffering, okay? But I know the big picture. I know the end game. And I know that as I trust the Lord more, and maybe what I need to trust the Lord more is all my stuff to be taken away. Because then I can really join some of the, my brethren in Christ who pray the prayer sincerely, Lord, grant me this day my daily bread. You and I can't pray that prayer. Not sincerely. I've got a giant freezer in my garage. And I've got, I have to have extra rooms for, you know, we have to have pantries full of food and cupboards full, you know. We don't pray that prayer. And if that runs out, we have a grocery store right over here. But there are some cultures and societies right now where Christians don't have any of that, including the store. And they're genuinely praying the prayer of faith. Give me this day my daily bread. And they don't know where tomorrow's food's going to come from. They're praying for today's food. And they trust the Lord much more than I do. You and I trust in Smiths and Albertsons. So I understand that testing is going to strengthen my faith, that my faith really is pretty small, and that's why I get an, an, have anxiety, that's why I have worry instead of joy. The opposite of joy is not sadness and agony. The opposite of joy is anxiety, is worrying. That's what robs joy. 
if I trust the Lord, if I know the whole picture, then I endure what I endure, and I can do it with even expressions of agony. Oh, this hurts, Lord. Why do I have to go through this? And then I go, oh, yeah. I know the end game. Jesus Christ didn't need the Father to answer the question, why have you forsaken me? He already knew the answer, and it gives him an opportunity to remind himself of why he was forsaken. Oh, that's right. I became sin for you, that you might join me in heaven. That's why I'm here. And it's okay to have those expressions. As long as it's not I'm abandoning God, but rather I'm trying to remind myself of what this is all about. Oh, that we would have those reminders that we have this whole picture and now with joy I can endure suffering because I know my inheritance. I know who I am trusting. I know that in order for me to be kept, my faith needs to be stronger. And the only way to strengthen my faith is to test my faith. And so I always encourage people come to me and say, I just don't think God can do that. So let's try. Can we try one thing? Let's try one thing and see if God will take care of us. I had to do this. I had to do this as a young pastor. Those poor people up at Rio Rancho, they had to deal with a very young pastor who'd come in and, and, and there's, my faith was small. And so I said, well, the way to grow faith is to test it. Have it tested. I'm going to do this and see if the Lord will provide. And he did. Surprised? We shouldn't be. And so testing talks about patience in James. We talk about enduring, which is not brief, it's long. That term talks about duration. That I'm going to stick to it, the duration. It's not about brevity. Well, I'll endure testing for a day. Well, okay, what's about the next day? If you have to suffer for two days in a row, are you going to abandon God? You're not an endurer. An endurer recognizes that this... If my faith really is going to be strengthened, it has to be done on a regular basis, regular intervals, and as those intervals come along, they're going to get longer because my faith is stronger. And God won't let us down. He will not. Because it's the power of God that is keeping us. It's not my faith that's keeping me. It's my faith in the power of God. It's the power of God that's keeping me. My faith in God needs to be increased. And if I'm sitting around worried and anxious, and, and, and trust me, I'm preaching to me here today, okay, because I'm, I'm the worrier. Okay, none of you worried about whether it was going to be warm in here today, were you? Any of you worry about that last night? I did. My wife raised her hand. <laughs> okay, so I come over here, check the temperature, make sure it's, uh, and, and now I'm sweating. So, made sure it was warm, though. So I'm preaching here that anxiety is, should be gone because we should be trusting the Lord, that's faith, and what strengthens our faith is the testing. What helps me to endure is, no, why do I stay joyful in testing? Because I know the whole picture. I know where I was, I know what is, and God has already told me what's waiting for me so I can endure this stuff. And even the plundering of my goods, even the the hardship of reproach, of being called bad names, of being uh, cursed at, being rejected, being expelled from society, any of that, and all of that has happened to people, even to the point of death. 
And this we are called to. So when we come to, I have one more passage. When we come to Peter and we're talking about our being born again. And we talk about our inheritance undefiled. And we talk about our preservation uh, by the power of God. These three wonderful gifts Peter has described. And he come to this saying, that, well, wait a minute, you have to suffer to get those? No, suffering is the mechanism, is the, is the tool to strengthen our faith because the power of God is not going to do this independent of your will. It is not in the economy of God to do that. He desires for all men everywhere to come repentance, but it's those who, and he will bring godly sorrow, he will bring conviction on them, but they must repent. He doesn't repent for them. They must do it. And the similarly here, the power of God is available to all men, but the switch for that we talked about last week is our faith. The small little thing that connects us to the power of God. And that God waits for us to throw that switch of faith. And again, without the goal, the expectation, the, the desire is for our faith to be increasing, for our faith to be proven genuine, for our faith to lay hold of that which Christ has laid hold of me. When we go into Revelation, I want to invite you to turn there as our last comparable text here that we want to delve into. We find the letters to the churches. And uh, several of these we could go into, um, a couple of them particularly. Let's pick up in chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 8. It says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna, Right. These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days, but be faithful until the death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Do you hear the relationship again? Again and again and again and again throughout God's Word, we see the relationship between our inheritance, our faith, our endurance of suffering, and our joy. We have this hope, this confident sureness that there is held for us a great inheritance, that there is carried within us a great power to endure all things so that we can get to that inheritance, that nothing can keep that inheritance from being in our hands one day except our own lack of faith. If we simply say, we don't want it. We want the things of this world more. But the people of Smyrna, they recognized this, and so they, they endured tribulation. They worked the works of God, and, and they did those works, and they were impoverished in this world. 
Who are your friends? Do we befriend the rich and not the poor? This is what James talks about. Poor man comes in the church, rich man comes in the church. Who gets the most attention? Yeah, that was a problem way back then, <laughs> not just modernly. These people were poor. They were impoverished by, their, by living for Christ, and the world hated them, took away their jobs, took away their, their possessions, took away, and they were, in the world's view, poor. But look at God's view of them. Yet you are rich. Oh, that we would understand that we have a heavenly bank account that you are hopefully making regular deposits into. Again, the end of Philippians, you can read about that heavenly bank account. And I fear that we are so concerned about our earthly bank account and maintaining the balances there that we forget that I haven't made any deposits into my heavenly bank account. And that one is an eternal one. This one here is a temporal one. Yet we put all of our perspective here and none there. Oh, that we would invest in that. The people of Smyrna did. And so they had no fear. They are told to have no fear. You're going to be surrounded by those who blaspheme, who claim to be one of you, but they are not. Uh, don't fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. You have no fear. Why? Because we have joy. Because we know the end. Be faithful till death, and I will give you the crown of life. Please notice the crown of life is eternal. The testing is temporal. In this verse, verse 10, it says it's 10 days. And in prophetic literature, days can mean a number of things. Years, it can mean 10,000 years. But whatever length of time, it's all temporal. But your life is eternal. Your prize is eternal. I endure the temporary suffering because like Jesus on the cross, I had a joy of what was beyond it. Remember, he is our example. And so I recognize testing is going to build me up. It's going to strengthen me. Just like exercising your body, just like exercising your mind. You know, it used to be a commercial I grew up with, you know, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs and, you know, frying up some eggs. And, and others that said a mind is a terrible thing to waste. How do you waste it? By not exercising it. How do you exercise a mind? Well, not by watching TV. The studies show you have more brain activity sleeping than watching TV. Think about that for a little That's a frightening thought. So I'm going to exercise my mind, just like any other thing. I, I, I need to exercise my mind. And, and by reading, by studying, by, and there's nothing better to read and study than this book. This is a great exercise, not only for your spiritual benefit, but for your mental acuity. Developing your... You know, I just used acuity. You don't... Uh, Build your vocabulary. That's a great exercise for your mind. All right? And uh, to, it's like any other part of your body. If you let it go to mush, it will. If you let any part, if you stop exercising, your body will stop being strong. Period. It's like any other part. You should be developing your mind. That's why I do puzzles. That's why I do those then weird things. Why? Because... 
I want to be strong. What about your faith? Well, I want to exercise it too. So I'm going to go out and do hard things. Notice in Smyrna, I know your works. The first thing was works. Are you ready to do hard things for God? Coming to church is an easy thing. Are you willing to do hard things for God? Now, my tendency is to not want to do hard things for God, right? Um, I had excuses not to do hard things for God. Um, I, I, I had excuses because the Indian government wouldn't give me a visa, so I, every time Pastor Reddy calls and says, we want you to come do it, I'm like, well, I, I can't get a visa. It's a good excuse not to have to do hard things because going down there and, and ministering for the length of time they were asking me was going to be hard, and I knew it. It would be easier to avoid it, and I had an excuse. And it was costly. It cost money every time you put in for a visa. And after three times, I'm like, I think I'm out of money. Well, I wasn't. Uh, but I don't know how much more money I want to throw after this. He said, please apply another time. And so, oh, all right. I'll try to do something hard and costly. But God blessed it. Are we ready to do the works of God? Are we ready to take on difficult assignments instead of just the easy coasting spiritually? People of Smyrna did. We'll take on the hard jobs no one else wants. We, as a church, have a reputation in our fellowship of churches of taking on difficult assignments that nobody else wants. Do you know that? They call me. Because they know you. We have, a, we have something that nobody else will pick up and, and help out with. Would your church be willing to do it? Probably. I'll ask them. Church of Smyrna, we know your works. But we also know what else? Tribulation and poverty. Are we prepared for tribulation. And I don't know that we are well prepared. But a study of God's word makes it clear that we should be, and it maybe is one of the major focuses that we should have in ministry is to prepare one another to endure trials. When too much American preaching has been for comfort and posh living, as evidence of God's blessing. Maybe the greatest evidence of God's blessing is trials. And we've seen it. Do you think Ambrose is a blessing or a trial? The question is wrong. He is a blessing and a trial, isn't he? Yeah. We can go right through the list. We can go through our lives and say, well, this is hard. And the hardship wasn't just having this child, it's raising this child. Parenting in general, <laughs> not even with a special needs kid, parenting in general. It's hard, but it's a blessing. God said so. It is the evidence of his blessing on your relationships. And so we have this, and we say, this is a blessing from God. And, and is it hard? Yes. 
you've heard me repeatedly say that one of the hardest jobs on the planet is uh, being a parent of multiple preschoolers. Many of you have taken on that hard job. Trials. But you have to endure because you see something past those. In our faith in God, in our inheritance that awaits us, oh, that we would see past today's suffering, even if it's extreme, that we'd take on the hard jobs, that we'd be like Smyrna, we'd take on the tribulations, we'll even embrace poverty if necessary to be rich in Jesus Christ. This is the kind of faith that Peter wants us to develop, that God wants us to develop and wants to help us do it. Not just through preaching and the reading of God's word, but by actually experiencing trials. And I believe we are coming into a period of time in the history of man where those trials are going to be extreme. Are you ready? It's easy to say you're ready. Have you taken steps to prepare your mind by understanding what your goal and aspiration is, your heart, your relationships, which is part of Peter's concern, and your stuff of detaching yourself a little bit from it because it might be taken away very soon, and even your freedoms. We're beginning to see an assault on freedoms that we wouldn't have imagined a year ago this time aren't we? Are you ready to joyfully give them up to test your faith? Brace yourselves, brethren, because the day of the Lord is a day of suffering, not by his hand, but by the world bringing tribulation against us. But it is temporary. It's only 10 days. But life, the crown of life is eternal. And that's what we strive after. And we just have to push through this slaw to get there. But once we get there, there'll be nothing to cry about. Right? And nothing to suffer over. That's what we're waiting for. But we're not just waiting passively, we're waiting actively. Do the works, endure the trials. Embrace poverty if necessary. But never confuse the world's view of success with God's blessing. Oh, God's blessing is in the suffering because our faith increases and that strengthens our being kept for our inheritance. Let's pray.